one of the things that has been core to the Honnold Foundation's approach and values is thinking about how do we advance environmental sustainability and combat climate change in a way that really benefits marginalized communities first and foremost. You know, I recently heard somebody refer to philanthropy as risk-tolerant capital. I really like that because I think we have the ability to think about human and planetary impact without thinking about financial ROI. I often get asked about risk because Alex, our founder, is famous as a climber who climbs without ropes. And so he's, as you can imagine, extremely risk tolerant. And I think that that filters down to the way that we think about this work. One of the things that's true in the climbing community, and and Alex has a lot, is you do a lot of background work and research and getting to know a potential climbing partner. And once you decide you're going to partner with them, you trust them with your life. I think we take that same approach when it comes to partnering with organizations. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vedya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you organizations that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful organization employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Emily Tightsworth of Honnold Foundation partnering with marginalized communities to expand solar energy access. She joins us from Oakland, California. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be with you. Climate change and its impact on global communities, especially the more vulnerable emerging nations, can be devastating. For instance, the floods in Pakistan, you know, which started in June 2022, was the combined effect of unusually heavy rains, glacier melts, heat wave that has caused devastation and considered one of the deadliest floods in Pakistan's history, killing over 1,700 people. In some ways, the impact of consumption and practices of, say, a suburban American home is impacting nations far and wide. There seems to be a sense of unfairness in this, isn't it? Absolutely true. And I think, you know, it's interesting you bring up fairness because that was really core to why the Honnold Foundation was founded in the first place. And our founder, Alex Honnold, is a rock climber who started the foundation in 2012 when he was still living in a van and climbing all over the world. And he started to be exposed to all of these remote communities, you know, in Borneo and Chad and even here in the U.S. that didn't have access to electricity or were relying on dirty energy like diesel and coal and was really, I think, deeply struck by that sense of unfairness that in the U.S. we're consuming at such a huge rate. And then these other places that may have no access to electricity are the ones that are bearing the brunt of climate change. From that sort of original realization that he had at that time, he decided to focus on solar energy because it's a way to positively impact the environment. And it allows these so-called frontline communities that are really facing the brunt of climate change to chart their own course of development. And, you know, as we've seen in a lot of different ways, the sort of goals around just transition to renewable energy can be really challenging when you think about community self-determination and development. And the genesis of the Honnold Foundation was really focused on how do we write some of this unfairness in the climate crisis and how do we really put communities in the driver's seat, so to speak, in terms of charting their own course towards renewable energy. When was the Honnold Foundation started? 2022 was our 10th anniversary. So we've been around for a little over a decade now. And 
We really started, I think, quite small with some seed funding around the globe and have grown pretty rapidly over the last 10 years. In 2022, we gave out $2 million in funding, and that is really focused on frontline communities and community-based organizations. And I think you know, doing this podcast, I'm sure that you've seen, there's often sort of a, a split between these conversations about community and human development and environmental sustainability. And one of the things that has been core to the Honnold Foundation's approach and values is thinking about how do we advance environmental sustainability and combat climate change in a way that really benefits marginalized communities first and foremost. And so I'm happy to say that last year alone, we gave out $2 million in funding to local communities around the world, ranging from Ladakh in India to islands in central Nicaragua and Navajo Nation here in the U.S. That really spans the globe. The dollar really goes a long way in countries like India, where the conversion rate is of around 82 to 83 rupees to a dollar. So you can impact lives and your impact can be more pronounced in some of the countries where the dollar is pretty strong. That's absolutely true. And I think we've really focused on seed funding. I think you could think about it as seed funding versus like series A or series B if you were an investor. We really work with organizations and communities that haven't had a lot of outside partnership and support and help them prove that what they're doing is innovative and effective and then help pair them with other larger funders or government partners and utility scale support. I think in addition to that money going further, there's also this need for organizations like the Honnold Foundation that are willing to start small and to take risks and then to help sort of move those organizations and communities up the ladder in terms of the scale of the impact that they're able to have. How do you assess risk? Because, you know, nonprofits are usually possibly volunteer-based, very small, and you want to impact the small ones. How do you know they will exist and use your funds per your terms? You know, I recently heard somebody refer to philanthropy as risk-tolerant capital. I really like that because I think we have the ability to think about human and planetary impact without thinking about financial ROI. To us, it really isn't, it doesn't matter if they, you know, their solar system turns a profit in five years. It's about what it's doing for the community. And often that does bear financial fruit eventually, but we can really focus on these other pillars. And so I think often we are in this position to be able to take these innovative risks and provide proof of concept to other funders. One example that I like to share is an organization that we've worked with in the Amazon in South America called Cara Solar. So they um, piloted a solar boat design. Instead of using diesel-powered canoes in the Amazon, which pollute the air and the water, they created a solar-powered boat. And you know, a lot of funders and other supporters were skeptical that it would work, but we were able to come in and provide seed funding for them to create the first prototypes. And then once that was proven to be successful, they were able to scale that up across the Amazon. And they even now have partners in the South Pacific that are using the same design. And so it's being funded by social impact investors because we were able to help them create this proof of concept. And so I think that lens on risk and thinking that, you know, we can really put the communities first and then the ROI comes later has been really, I think, fundamental to how we think about risk. And I often get asked about risk because Alex, our founder, is famous as a climber who climbs without ropes. And so he's, as you can imagine, extremely risk tolerant. And I think that that filters down to the way that we think about this work, that like, 
it's not so much a failure if a project doesn't work out as a learning experience. And almost in some way fatalistic, right? This has to happen and this is how I want it to happen and everything else will work out. You know, that sort of seems to be the philosophy. Exactly. I mean, I think you have to be a pragmatic optimist in that we have to do our due diligence. We have a pretty serious vetting process when we look at the potential partners. But one of the things that's true in the climbing community, and and Alex has a lot, is you do a lot of background work and research and getting to know a potential climbing partner. And once you decide you're going to partner with them, you trust them with your life. I think we take that same approach when it comes to partnering with organizations. We do a lot of research and vetting. Once we've done that process, we really trust them to make the best decisions and to take leadership in the project in a way that I think not all funders feel comfortable trusting community-based groups. What would be the key metric? Is it the people or the cause or the potential impact? I think for us, it's really twofold. One is the environmental impact and the ability to to show that either these communities that had no access to electricity have sustainable solar access over the long term, or they've been able to transition from coal and diesel and other really polluting practices to solar. And then at the same time, for them to clearly define what they see as success and for us to help them get there. So it really varies across the kind of projects that we support. And I think what we really look for is what we would call a a win-win-win. You know, the solar system works, it works for the community development objectives, and it has some sort of conservation or environmental benefit. One of the things that I've seen over and over again, and that is, you know, in projects in Central America and here in the U.S. and in South Asia and Africa is thinking about solar installation, not just as putting panels on roofs or, you know, installing infrastructure, but also sort of the workforce development component that goes along with it and ensuring that local people and young people are really involved in maintenance and installation and upkeep of the system. Because we've seen in so many of these communities that, especially for young people, there's not a lot of vision for the future. And so having access to solar energy, which often also brings access to the internet, and then this access to workforce development and job training is is sort of this, an example of that win-win-win where you see communities actually able to reverse out migration to bring young people back from cities where they may have left to find jobs. And those are the kind of things that we have seen over the last few years and as these projects sort of mature and, and we can see their impact. But truthfully, it It's something that we look to the communities to define what success looks like for them. And then we, our role is really to enable that success. I'm trying to grasp and understand how Honold Foundation operates with its partners and its grantees. So you find an NGO or a nonprofit and give them the seed money to electrify their community with solar panels. So do you provide the technology And you mentioned training for the youth in terms of retaining them, reducing the drain from these rural communities to the urban. Is that kind of the flow? Yeah, so we are talking right at the sort of very tail end of our annual open call for proposals. And that what that means is every January we spread the word that we're accepting applications from community-based organizations to work with us. We tend to receive many more 
proposals than we can fund. So last year alone, we received 800 applications for support and we're able to fund 24 projects. So there's a huge sort of winnowing down that has to happen because we're a relatively small funder. But essentially through our networks, organizations learn about us, they submit a proposal to us for a general idea of the kind of solar that they would like to use along with one of the requirement required elements is a community development aspect. So that could be workforce training. We do a lot of gender-based, you know, and women's empowerment work as well. So agriculture, there's sort of a whole range of things that can be the add-on to the solar. So it's usually solar plus a community development goal. And then for the projects that we fund and support, we have a volunteer technical advisory committee that is made up of solar technical experts and they work alongside the community to troubleshoot and make sure that they have the capacity and the and the resources to actually complete the installation with a local partner. So that's sort of phase one, but we always say once a partner, always a partner. One of the things that has been great about our founder's public profile is he has millions of followers on social media and we've been able to do quite a bit of visual and film storytelling with our partners. So sort of the first phase of actually starting a partnership and doing the solar installation. And then from there, we do quite a bit of storytelling to help spread the word about these organizations. And the idea is one, to get a broader public sort of bought into to investing in this kind of community development, but also to just create a platform for these very small and often very local organizations to reach new supporters and other partners as well. So our partnerships will range from, on the small end, a one-year $30,000 grant. And then on the larger end, one of our biggest projects is 14 business microgrid in Puerto Rico that's taken three years to complete. So what the trajectory of those projects looks like depends on the size, but it usually starts with a solar installation and then the community development work comes, you know, sort of flows from there. So we talk about partners and projects in faraway lands, Puerto Rico, not that far, but India and Nepal and other such places. But we have a need in a lot of our indigenous communities, which have been neglected, exploited, and the list goes on of the way they have been treated. Why does it need to be the role of a nonprofit like yours to help these communities. America is a fairly affluent country compared to many of the other countries. But why do you need to be doing this? One of the things we always hope for is to eventually work ourselves out of a job here. I think part of it is scale and access to resources in some of these communities. So we've been funding work in the Navajo and Hopi nations for quite some time. And that is often it's solar and workforce development, specifically for communities that never had any access. So we're relying on small, you know, home generators for electricity at best. That's been a hugely transformative process, but it started at a really small scale that was too small for like a government partner to take on. And so that grows and there's this track record of success. They've started to attract state and federal partners to scale that up. And that's something we've also seen. We've been doing some work in West Virginia in coal country with this incredible organization called Coldfield Development. So that's a very, you know, impoverished, coal-dependent region. And we partnered with them early on to do workforce development and solar installations um, in several communities. And this past year, based on that track record, they got an $88 million grant from the federal government. So I think there is this sort of pipeline and pathway where these smaller, I think, risk-tolerant funders can 
can lead the way and then that larger institutional partnership follows. And, you know, unfortunately, the government is very risk averse. And so I think they need to see that proof of concept before they come in. And I wish that wasn't the case. But, you know, I think it is a role that that groups like the Honnold Foundation can play in ensuring that that just transition can take place and then can gather momentum and go to scale. So where do you get your funding from? We're lucky in that our core operations costs are covered by our founder, Alex. And then from there, the rest of our funding each year is generated from a combination of individual and corporate donors who partner with us either on one specific project or just invest in the success of the organization overall. And in the early years, that really came from Alex's fame and notoriety as a climber and and his network. And I think because there are a relatively small number of organizations like the Honnold Foundation doing community-centered solar energy development, that has grown over time to include a network of businesses and individuals who are really invested in our approach to supporting both people and the planet with frontline communities in mind. Often when people evaluate nonprofits, they use the overhead ratio or what is your overhead ratio? It's such a an interesting conversation because I think for us, ours is very low. We spend probably about 10% of our, our budget on overhead. And that is because so much of our funding goes out in the form of grants. But one of the things that's starting to happen, and I'm really a proponent of, is shifting that thinking a little bit to value the role of operations and fundraising and all of these sort of backbone pieces that go into making a nonprofit successful. So especially a direct service organization is going to spend more money on operations, and that really allows them to be effective in their work. And so I hope we can shift that thinking a little bit more and think that like we happen to be able to not spend a lot of our money on operations. But, you know, if you think about the corporate world, nobody's questioning a huge marketing budget. But in the nonprofit world, that's, you know, seen as as somehow bad management. And so I think shifting that lens a bit is is another of the things that we're working on with our partners. Like they have to invest in their people and their operations to be successful in the long term. So you started working at the Honnold Foundation about a year and a half ago. What is your background? Did you always work in the nonprofit space? Yes and no. So I finished college around about 20 years ago and immediately went to work as a wrangler on a horse ranch in the Arizona desert. So nothing at all to do with what I do now. But when I was working there, it was sort of the beginning of the border crisis here in the U.S. And there were people traveling through the land where I worked every day. And I started to like, talk to them and, and learn more about their stories and realized that, you know, I could feel like I could escape into the desert, but nonprofit work was going to follow me wherever I went. And so I ended up doing a lot of work with migrant workers here in the U.S. and started to think about especially girls and women and the role that sort of gender empowerment and leadership for girls and women can play in economic development. And that led me to work in leadership and advocacy for local organizations that advance girls and women's rights for about 12 years. But as I went through that work, I realized that, you know, girls and women are the most affected uh, when it comes to climate change. They're the ones that have to find water and carry firewood and clean up after a flood and And so I started to see that in the gender space, there really wasn't a lot of conversation about environment and climate change. And it just became more and more urgent in my mind that we needed to focus on that. And so 
when this opportunity to work at the Honnold Foundation came up, it just seemed like a perfect marriage of those two priorities. We do quite a bit of work around women and girls, and there is this clear focus on renewable energy and environmental conservation. So I sort of steadily trended in that direction over time. But I think for me, it really is always with this lens of what does this mean for people and particularly the most marginalized among us? Because environmental sustainability is nothing if it's not bringing people along. And I don't think it's going to work in the long term either. So that's really the lens that I bring to this work. I mean, I'm not a rock climber and I wasn't a solar energy expert when I joined the Honnold Foundation, but I think we're at this point in the climate crisis where it's an all hands on deck moment. And and I think we all have different expertise to bring to it. So it's exciting to see both nonprofit and for-profit businesses really leaning in in a really more direct way on climate and also recognizing that, you know, big bet technology innovation for climate is important, but ultimately it's not going to be a just transition if we don't have leadership from communities on the front lines. Why did you pick or Honnold Foundation pick um, solar as means of energy? Ten years ago when the Honnold Foundation started, I think it wasn't necessarily clear that we would make the transition to renewable energy. And now it's a lot more clear. But that started to be our focus really because it was the most adaptable, accessible, and low-cost renewable energy option. To do hydro or wind requires a level of investment and sort of technical sophistication that is a lot harder to achieve for frontline communities. And so that started out, you know, as our original focus. And we currently have a pipeline of about $120 million of projects that we've not yet been able to support that would do incredible things for the communities where they'd take place. And so given the sort of almost overwhelming level of need and interest for this kind of work, we've decided to stay the course in solar because there's not a lot of other organizations doing this. You know, as technology develops and new opportunities come up, you know, that may change. But at the moment, it still really is the most low cost and adaptable form of renewable energy for frontline communities. And so that will continue to be our focus as long as it's the best fit for the places where we work. I don't know if your paths have crossed the paths with another organization which was featured on Mindful Businesses, the Barefoot College Thelonia in Rajasthan. It's just a heartwarming story and it hits all the points that you want to hit on, work on. I was just listening to your podcast episode with them, actually. So, yeah, really incredible work. And that is sort of the kind of organization that we look for and partner with that are thinking about, yeah, holistically, what does development look like for the poorest and most marginalized people? And then how can we as an organization that focuses on energy access really enable their advancement? Pretty incredible work there. So when we talk about impact, Another organization which goes hand in hand with your endeavors is the Levine Impact Lab. Talk about how Peter Levine and Alex Honnold came up to start this partner organization. Cool story that starts with Alex and Peter becoming friends over several years. And the Levine Impact Lab is actually an initiative of the Honnold Foundation. So it's part of our organizational structure. And it's something that has been endowed by tech VC Peter Levine, who's an early stage investor in a lot of, of the big, you know, California-based tech companies and also a climber and environmentalist. And, you know, I think as he 
has started to think more about his philanthropy. He and Alex had conversations about what that could look like in the context of the work of the Honnold Foundation and how he could actually not only use his philanthropy, but his expertise advising companies and organizations to support our partners and our grantee organizations. How can a VC who is always in the private space, and in my mind, VCs are always looking for a 4X or a 2X or an 8X, come to the space where it is high risk and low return or zero return? He's not a typical VC, but he does bring that lens. And ultimately, what we decided to partner on is thinking about You know, if he's going to invest in a company, he's not just giving them funding. He's also working as an advisor and mentor, connecting them to other resources and investing in sort of their backbone and operations in a way that really doesn't happen in the nonprofit space. So I think there's a shared recognition between Peter, Alex and the Honnold Foundation staff that really for too long nonprofits have been expected to tackle the world's toughest problems with nowhere near the resources that they need. And so... With Peter's partnership, we're offering unrestricted funding, leadership development, and then coaching from Peter and other industry leaders to the leaders who are running these nonprofits. I think it's a way to enable their long-term success. And, you know, he's not looking for financial ROI here. It's really about how do we enable nonprofit organizations to have long-term success and particularly environmentally focused organizations using some of the tools and skills that he's built up as a VC over the last, you know, many years. And I think ultimately the impact that he wants to see and that we're hoping to see is that they have the ability to make these strategic long-term decisions and not just tactical reactive decisions because they don't have enough funding or they don't have the leadership, you know, support that they need. And I think all of us are approaching this from a risk-tolerant perspective. He's also a climber, so I think he and Alex have that same sort of ability to take calculated risks. In a way, the Levine Impact Lab is an experiment because it's a kind of partnership that hasn't been tried so much before, and I think ultimately it is about financial resources for these organizations, but it's also about bringing the leadership and organizational development skill set of somebody like Peter to nonprofits that would you know, never otherwise have access to that kind of expertise. It's in some ways you're using the principles of running and scaling a startup and bringing it to the nonprofit world. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, recognizing that these are complicated problems, right? These organizations are working on climate and gender empowerment and workforce training and all of these like very difficult and interlinked problems and that they need that kind of support over the long term to really be successful. And so each organization that joins the lab, we offer a three-year commitment. So they get unrestricted funding, mentorship, and this kind of coaching over a three-year period so that they know they have this runway to build up new and innovative programs. And they're not just sort of like a lot of nonprofits kind of scrambling month to month or year to year to make things happen. I'm not sure if you know Mindful Businesses is a nonprofit. And we struggle with that. You know, it's we are bootstrapping at this moment and uh, self-funding, but we are pretty passionate about the cause. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I think anyone that's run a small nonprofit and thought like, OK, well, we have like a, a one week runway or like a three month runway. And how do we make decisions in that context? Like you're not able to make the most strategic 
or thoughtful choices just because of that sort of financial reality that you face. And so I'm really excited to be able to offer this because I've experienced that running various nonprofits that that kind of stress makes really good decision making difficult. And so I'm excited to see what that does for some of these organizations and hopefully, you know, it can help them scale and deepen their impact in ways that we're not sure what that's going to look like, but we really are here to partner with them and help them determine what that looks like over the next three years. So what has been the financial impact of Peter Levine's partnership with Honold and Levine Impact Lab? He's a really thoughtful and supportive partner, and he endowed this Levine Impact Lab with a a $5 million gift to the Honold Foundation. So that really helps us launch and take to scale the first cohort of partner organizations within the lab. And then the hope is alongside Peter and some other partners that we continue to grow that both in the U.S. and around the world, because I think, you know, there's not a lot of organizational support like this in the U.S., but it's almost non-existent outside the U.S. And so for us to have like a Latin America Spanish language cohort of Levine Impact Lab partners, for example, fills a gap in that kind of support to grassroots organizations that, you know, significant here in the U.S., but only more so in other places. And so I think for both Peter and and the Honold Foundation, this is something that we want to see grow and change and evolve over the years to come. So this $5 million foundation gives you a payout of about 25000 at 5%, around that much? It's not actually an investment fund. It's just purely philanthropic support for these organizations. So they will get grants and then, you know, they're responsible for creating impact for their communities and environmental impact as their deliverable, so to speak. But they're not actually paying back this this money. It's purely philanthropic. An interesting point that you bring up because a lot of foundations have big endowments and they only spend out 5 or 10% of that endowment every year. And one of the sort of core values of the Honold Foundation and one of the things that drew me to work here is that we are pretty strongly anti-endowment. We feel like this is the rainy day. And so as much funding as we're able to raise and bring in in a given year, we give out as much as possible of that. So we are far exceeding what you would think of as a typical foundation and that's giving out like a small portion of that endowment and investing the rest of it in various funds and that sort of thing. Um, we really feel like, especially when it comes to climate and energy, we need to be moving as much money as possible as quickly as possible. And so I think that's one thing that sets the Honol Foundation apart from other foundations and, and nonprofits that do this kind of grant making is that we have never and we, we will never have an endowment as an organization. What are your next steps? With the Levine Impact Lab, we're going to be launching our first cohort of four organizations and 12 individual leaders starting this April. And we're really excited to see that take off. We'll also be funding a new round of between 20 and 30 new partners in May of this year. And those will range from indigenous nations here in the U.S. to community-based organizations in Madagascar and, and the Amazon. And exciting point in the year where we get to see all this potential start to unfold. And, you know, I think the most exciting part of our job is is to be able to send that money out and see the impact that it has for frontline communities. So our focus at the moment is really on launching the Levine Impact Lab and then 
resourcing a whole new generation of partner organizations um, and helping them scale. Wishing you all the best. Emily Tightsworth of Honnell Foundation, thank you so much for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, produced and hosted by Vidya Ayer. We would love to hear from you. Send us an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. Click on the subscribe button to be the first to learn about our latest episodes. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was conducted by Tatum Gale. Roseanne Korean is our marketing assistant. Constance Thurmond of Cora Insights is our nonprofit consultant. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses. You're listening to Mindful Businesses produced and hosted by Vedya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing from this episode, share it with one friend. Click on the subscribe button to be the first to learn about our latest episodes. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Roseanne Korean is our marketing assistant. Kathan Karat is our podcast editor. Constance Thurmond of Cora Insights is our nonprofit consultant. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashrija. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.